Welcome to the Paul Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. Professor, we've seen a withdrawal of American, not only troops, but interest in the Middle East. What are the implications of that for IR? You could argue that U.S. policy towards the Middle East, and in particular, U.S. military presence in the Middle East, has been one of the pillars of the post-World War II international order, if you want to call it that. Right. There's a lot of debate about whether we want to call it the the liberal international order, what have you. But the reality is that since World War II, the U.S. has had a consistent policy of maintaining a military presence of some sort. Sometimes it's direct troops being based there. Sometimes it's more an over the horizon type policy, carrier groups, what have you. But there's been this desire to have a direct military presence in the Middle East, that's, again, not just with respect to having troop presence or military assets in the region, but also having alliances, allies in the region, most notably and longest lasting being Saudi Arabia. Now, of course, where our relationship with Saudi Arabia goes back into the 1930s, enhanced during World War II, and has continued since then. And so given that, anytime that we start to see a pivot away from the Middle East, it naturally leads to bigger questions about what does this mean for U.S. foreign policy in general. Now, if you want to use the phrase the greater Middle East, and this has been a phrase that's been used by the State Department, as well as in scholarly circles, where the greater Middle East, you know, if we're talking about the Middle East proper, the typical way we conceptualize that is, of course, thinking about Israel and neighboring countries. You could take that to the Persian Gulf, but the greater Middle East includes those regions as well as extending all the way to, say, Afghanistan. And of course, back in August, the U.S. finally ended its presence in Afghanistan, that being the most notable event in terms of the U.S. moving out of the Middle East. And so this is something that we have to really think hard about, is what does this mean? So first of all, why is the U.S. doing this? Well, you could just pinpoint Afghanistan as a one-off event. You could say, well, the U.S. has been involved in Afghanistan for 20 years and eventually had to end. Obama wanted to get out. Trump started that movement. Biden eventually did. So you could just say that that was a one-off thing and it's not really connected to the region as a whole. However, I think that that's hard to sustain because of a few other things. Most notably are the Abraham Accords, right? And this, of course, is the agreement between Israel and several Arab nations then it has taken on over a series of months. They were kind of gradually signed on to Morocco, UAE, et cetera. And those accords were largely brokered between the individual countries and is the individual Arab countries in Israel. But the State Department under Trump did play a key role in helping to support, lend support to those, if just rhetorical support, but also diplomatic support, um, having the presence, Secretary Pompeo showing up when these things are being signed. So you know, there's definitely an element that the U.S. was all behind this type of normalization, if you will, between Israel 
in various states in the region that historically Israel has had more animosity rivalry with even. And so if you start to couple these things together, you could make an argument that there's efforts by the United States to try to disengage from the region, or at least not have as high level of a presence in the region. Again, this is if you start to connect these dots. Now, why might the U.S. be doing that? Well, you could argue that part of that is because they feel like there's a new area that needs to have a lot of U.S. presence, and that is East Asia, right, with China. Of course, we've been witnessing what's happening in Ukraine, and there's a recognition that a traditional area of U.S. emphasis, Europe, still needs U.S. presence. And so, hence, there's only so many assets that can go around if you're trying to bolster U.S. presence in East Asia, at the same time, even trying to bolster U.S. presence in support in Europe, somewhere something has to give. And I think that my argument would be that the perception is that the Middle East region is a region that's ripe for allowing U.S. allies in that region to start to take more of the, if you will, burden sharing. Right. And that is having this normalization of relations between Israel and various other states that helps to relieve some tension that used to require U.S. presence, removing U.S. troops from Afghanistan being part of that. And then also trying to work with U.S. allies in that region to counter Iran. I think that this is another key element to something we ha I haven't yet mentioned is, of course, the Iran deal. And really, in many ways, you could argue that U.S. presence in the Middle East, continued presence in U.S. policy in the Middle East has been largely an effort to support its allies in its long-term, allies in the region, I should say, in their long-term rivalry with Iran. And where Saudi Arabia, the reason why I have Saudi Arabia on my mind is because there's often the phrase made that Saudi Arabia and Iran actually have been engaged in a 30-plus year, multi-decade Cold War between each other, where they've actually been engaging in proxy warfare, almost analogous to what we witnessed between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War. And so that's kind of the idea is that if the U.S. can take measures to allow its allies in the region to take on more of the burden, that's going to allow the United States to reallocate its focus elsewhere. It's interesting you mentioned that the uh, Abraham Accords is basically individual countries and, and certainly um, the Trump administration accelerated that process, if you like, and made it more possible. But what's the next step of those accords? It surely is to build an internal capacity to fill the void left by, say, not only American military, but also American intelligence. Well, I think that this is exactly the right way to be thinking about this, and it's consistent with the idea of increased burden sharing in the region. That, again, if you go back to the point I was just making about Iran and the perception, I'm not necessarily taking a side on this, but I am just saying that the perception is that Iran is viewed as a major threat by many of those states in the region. And that is something that unifies, if you will, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, Israel, Jordan, all these countries share that view that Iran is a threat. And so in many ways, this goes back to a classic line by George Liska. He wrote this in the 1960s in his book, Nations and Alliance, where Liska wrote that alliances are against and only derivatively for something or someone. So hence take NATO, right? So NATO has in its charter things like promotion of democratic values, human rights, 
Western culture. There's all these like aspirational things that they mention. But at the end of the day, NATO is an alliance. And what really links it together was uh, during the Cold War, the perceived threat of the Soviet Union. What has continued since the Cold War was both the fear of instability in Europe, which came to a head with the Balkans, and then also now today, the renewed threat from Russia. That's really what unifies that alliance. So you can speak to like democratic values, but the reality is that even when NATO was founded, Portugal, which was a founding member of NATO, was a dictatorship, right? So even then, they didn't adhere to these values. It was about opposing. And so you can look at the Abraham Accords as a combination of both the U.S. wanting to rebalance, if you will, wanting to withdraw itself, at least to a degree, from the region. These other nations who have been allies of the United States saying, well, we understand why the U.S. is doing this but we still perceive Iran as a threat, we're going to have to band together and work together towards this to ensure that we can balance Iran, prevent Iran from causing whatever turmoil, chaos that they perceive Iran as causing in the region. And so to me, that's really the heart of the Abraham Accords. So that leads naturally, though, to your question, which is, okay, well, what's the follow-up? It's one thing to normalize relations. It's another thing to say, okay, we're going to also have like enhanced economic cooperation, but what, what's going to happen on the military side? And this is really where I think the U.S. is still going to continue to play a role. The U.S. is still going to be a major military arms contractor and provider to all of these nations, whether it's military aid to Israel, whether it's the sale of weapons to various Gulf states. The U.S. is still going to play a role in that regard. But can these states make use of that themselves? Can they actually create their own, if you will, kind of military apparatus, the equivalent of a NATO for themselves? And will that require the United States to have to be a member to it? We can look back at history. This was attempted back in the 1950s, 1960s with the, with the Baghdad Pact, which was also known as CENTO, the Central Treaty Organization. It was supposed to be the equivalent of NATO, but in that region, Central Asia, Gulf, Middle East. And then also you had CETO, Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. But neither CENTO nor CETO actually came to resemble anything like NATO. And in fact, both eventually fell apart. So that's where I think you want to see the next step happen. I do think that's going to require still some U.S. assistance, just as we've seen with the Baghdad Pact. But also not just from a diplomatic front, but again, to emphasize on the military front, most of the military hardware being used by these countries that would be used in some sort of military is going to come from the United States. That's going to naturally want the United States to be a party in facilitating that process. Inevitably, the media tends to focus on the things that go wrong, the bumps in the road, if you like, for example, a, a recent disagreement about security arrangements at um, Dubai airport has had the Israeli intelligence saying we're going to stop flights and so on. I wonder, though, and one of the things I enjoy about talking to you is, is you tend to be able to be fairly positive about things. So instead of asking what could possibly go wrong here, I'd like to ask you, Professor, what could possibly go right? The reality is that diplomatic spats are going to arise. They're going to arise amongst even the staunches of allies. And look no further than the United States and France, right? I mean, throughout the history, France is literally the United States' longest standing ally. You know, we signed a treaty with France in order to become an independent nation, right, from the British. And it's gone since then. And yet, throughout 
the history, we have had diplomatic spats, quite serious ones with France, going back to the 1960s with de Gaulle, where he actually withdraws France from the military apparatus of NATO, right? And that's pretty serious. And yet, they still remain our ally, and there's still no question that the U.S. would support France if an invasion of Europe happened by the Soviet Union. So despite all of that very high level, very prominent diplomatic rancor, and again, I should say it was even more than diplomatic. I mean, he literally kicked NATO out of Paris. NATO was based in Paris. That is why it's in Brussels now, was they were, they were building the NATO headquarters when de Gaulle called it off and said, that's it, you've got to get out. So they're halfway building this structure and they're like, well, we can't use it for NATO anymore. I now think it's um, one of the prominent, it's now one of the main buildings for one of the universities <laughs> in Paris, right? Because they're like, oh, we're halfway through this building. So th there was real like consequences to this decision. And yet the alliance held firm. And so if you're looking at potential diplomatic spats between Israel and say, with the UAE, whether it's over security provisions within Dubai airport. I mean, the US and Canada also have arguments about this, you know, about like, oh, is the, you know, are you staunch enough security to be able to allow folks to be able to, you know, properly vetting individuals entering the United States? And yet no one questions the overall relationship between the United States and Canada. So I think that a lot of times these type of diplomatic spats can be overblown. However, what's important is that why is it that these diplomatic spats don't undermine the underlying relationship? Well, it still goes back, in my view, to the Liska quote, which is that at the end of the day, we can be upset about this or that or what have you, but we're unified in the number one thing, which is we perceive that there is a greater threat to the region. We're unified in stopping that threat.